Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Ron Miller is the interim dean at the Helms School of Government at Liberty University. He is a former executive at uh, the Department of Homeland Security and the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, in the United States. He's a blogger at ronsreflections.net, and he's the author of Sellout, Musings from Uncle Tom's Porch. We've talked to Ron. Ron and I have talked off the air and on the air for years. He's African-American, and he talked to us about the conversation. It was about a year ago, I guess, Ron. We talked about the conversation you had with your son that an African-American father has with his son about police. And I will never forget that. And thank you for joining us today. It's good to talk to you, my friend. Good to be back, Roy. Um, I want to ask you again about that conversation. But when would you assess for us, please? And you're around young people all the time at Liberty University. You're around these these, these young people who are going to be the next generation in charge. Um, what do you make of of what's going on, what's happening in the U.S., the level of discord, and we have our own here, but uh, the level of discord in the United States, and then what happened with uh, in, in Pittsburgh yesterday, and the pipe bomber who was arrested the uh, day before in Florida. How does this all, how do you assess all of this? Well, Roy, it's kind of a, a violation of, a, of the social contract, if you will, that we have in a pluralistic society where we understand that because of the diversity of thought and opinion that come together, diversity of, of beliefs, diversity of faith, all of these factors, our, our society was supposed to be built around this concept, and it was supposed to be something that made us exceptional for nations at the time, that rather than us coming to blows, literally coming to war, or going to war over our beliefs, that we would coexist, that we would talk, we would have dialogue, and implicit in that dialogue was the understanding that we all wanted good things. We just disagreed on the methods by which we would achieve them. And as long as we believed that, that there was a possibility of dialogue in the midst of disagreement. But now we have this mindset, this atmosphere that says that if you are against me, you are my enemy. There's become this us-versus-them mentality that really doesn't have any room for dialogue, any room for compromise, any room for coming together and and reasoning, because you you can't reason with the enemy. You can't reason with the other, if you will. And as long as we are looking at each other as the other, you you wonder just how much uh, further we can go with this experiment called the United States of America if our our cohesion uh, is disintegrated to the point where we can no longer hold together. 31%, I'll never forget this, and we spoke with the pollster involved, Fran Coombs at Rasmussen, was a guest on this program many times. 31% of Americans told Rasmussen they expect a civil war in the United States in the near future, maybe within the next five years. That's three out of ten. That's alarming. You know, I think about that, and, and this is where I think there's a bit of a dichotomy. Um, a lot of people who go into communities that are not familiar to them, who actually go and they live in these communities, and they learn to get to know people who are not like them, 
they generally come out of those experiences with a different perspective. There's a Hollywood writer, and I don't remember her name or the book, but she spent a year in Louisiana with people who uh, believed or thought nothing like her. But she grew to really uh, be fond of these people and to care about them, and they about her. And so on that level, you see uh, the possibility of community. But then I think so much of what happens in America today is being driven out of Washington, rather than the the, the governed, if you will, uh, setting the tone, we're allowing the, those that are governing us to set the tone. And there are a lot of people out there who are mimicking Washington, uh, and in dangerous situations, people who don't have the mental acuity to make the distinction between rhetoric and reality, like the individuals we've been exposed to recently, they then tend to take these things to their... Um, their logical um, conclusion or illogical conclusion, if you will. So the the politicians who shout at each other in front of a television camera and then later on wave to each other while they're having dinner at a restaurant, the, 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 the mentally uh, unstable individual uh, who, who sees only the, the, uh, the argument and then it, um, magnifies that, multiplies that, uh, over and over, he, that individual then takes these kinds of insane actions while really at least some of the, of the shouting was, was, was for theater between the politicians. There's a lot of theater involved, and it's unfortunate there are people out there who don't know the distinction. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't, I don't want to excuse... The, the, the people, if you will, because one of the things that's central to our way of government is that the people are supposed to be the ones that govern themselves first and foremost. Right. Now, if you look at what the founders here used to say, they believed that our form of government was made only for virtuous people, and by virtuous, what they were meaning was people who knew how to govern themselves. Because if we can't govern ourselves, and if we put all the blame on leaders saying they're at fault then what we're saying, in effect, is that we're incapable of controlling our impulses. We're incapable of being anything other than responsive to what the people at the levels of, at the levels of power do. Therefore, we're abdicating our whole concept of self-governance, and people need to think about that. You know, if they're going to put the blame on this political figure or that political figure, they're basically admitting that they don't have, that we the people don't have the capacity to govern ourselves. What is it that, uh, what is your level of concern for the United States? You said earlier, a few minutes ago, Ron, when you look at your society, and I would think about the conversation you had with your son about how a young African-American male deals with police, how, what's the advice to the, to the young man from his father. What are your concerns for, your, for, for, the, uh, for U.S. society? Uh, we seem to be allowing fear to, um, to overtake us. Um, and that, that concept I mentioned earlier about each one of us looking at those that we oppose as the other is allowing us to look at them from a less-than-human perspective, to look at them as a threat, to look at them as being something to oppose. And I really do believe that we've got to take a step back and start um, working with people and, and living with people uh, on a different level. Uh, one of the things I'm, I'm very proud of is something a student of mine told me um, after a class. She said that if she didn't know 
what my positions were uh, on a particular political issue, she wouldn't have been able to guess it from the way I taught the class. And I was really pleased to hear that because I really wanted to give people space to to think for themselves, to believe for themselves, and to consider all points of view because it's only in that manner that, number one, you start to build relationships and realize that maybe there are good ideas on the other side of the aisle and maybe those ideas you don't agree with are, are, not, are not as scary because you understand the motivations uh, that have created them. Uh, we really are isolating ourselves so much that we're allowing these echo chambers that we live in, whether it's social media or others, to to create these enclaves that that stand opposed to one another. And that's not that's not a formula for for a nation. That's a formula for a co- a collection of uh, ideologies and identities and other things that at some point is going to come apart. It, it's just not sustainable. Are you worried about? United States society coming apart? I am worried, yeah, I, I am. And, and it's because I think some of the things that were implicit to our um, our contract as, as citizens uh, are no longer uh, accepted by everyone. Um, we don't have, I'm wondering, what is it that we all hold in common these days? Um, you know, can, can we point to one thing or a number of things that we all agree on? Without question, there, there's no there's no equivocation, and I don't know what the answer to that is right now. I really don't. Does your son have an even playing field? Um, <laughs> I don't know that either. I worry about him all the time um, because I believe uh, he's somebody that's that's open-hearted and is always going to presume the best of everyone and everything. And because of that, I, I fear sometimes that he's going to encounter something different, and then I don't know what that would do. Yeah. Uh, father's concern. Ron, would you uh, remind us, please, of the conversation that you had? We talk about the you know, generational um, shifts or change, changing of the guard, as it were, as an older generation um, moving aside and providing advice to the next generation coming up. In your case, the African-American father talking to the African-American son about relations with police. Remind us, please, how that conversation went and why it was necessary. Well, it's interesting. You talk about the change of times and, and generational wisdom being passed down. And sad to say, this particular bit of wisdom has been passed down pretty consistently for decades and hasn't changed a great deal. And it has to do with how a, a young African-American man might be viewed without context, if you will. And so when the time came and I knew that my son was going to be out in the public eye more than, than he would have an ordinary day, and of course he's grown, um, he's, he's taller than me, he's bigger than me, and if you don't know him, uh, he can look kind of intimidating. And uh, um, I know that somebody looking at him without knowing him and this includes police officers, might you know, draw conclusions about him that aren't necessarily correct. And so the talk I had with him was just about how to show deference to authority so that he would not find himself in, in a difficult situation, to, you know, and uh, you know, to always use polite language, to, do, uh, to follow the directions he's told, to always be deliberate and slow in, in, in his movements, so that he would not pose a threat 
in any way, shape, or form if he found himself in a situation where he, he was stopped for whatever reason by law enforcement. And um, that, that talk, is, is, it's, it's difficult to have because you would like to think that anyone who knows your, your, your child would never draw the conclusion that they were, they were a threat. But if, there are a lot of situations where if you're not taking all of those precautions in, in your behavior, you could find yourself, um, you could find yourself dead. <laughs> That's just a, a, a difficult thing to think about. So that, that was the gist of the conversation. How old was he when you had that conversation? Oh, wow. I think probably around 16, 17. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and it was in the context we had moved from a, a largely rural area to uh, a small city, and so the chances of those encounters happening was increased a little bit. So, And, and, and I assured him it wasn't because of anything he had said or done that led me to have that, that, that conversation. It was just a precaution, if you will, um, because I, I wanted to... I wanted him to take care. How how did he accept that conversation? How did he how how did he uh, how did you react to to you, uh, your advice? Well, he the thing that I, I love about my son is he's always been a, a very uh, uh, quiet and gentle person, and he listened and he acknowledged it uh, quite quite well. You know, and, and he felt that uh, it was uh, wisdom that was being imparted, and and he treated it as such. Um, I, I, I didn't sense any um, uh, brushback that well they shouldn't you know, they shouldn't be, behave that way. Um, <laughs> it's good, conversely, I have a talk with my daughters about uh, being around men and how they conduct themselves, and while they understand that there's a certain way they should do things, I said, well, men shouldn't be that way. It's usually how they would come at me. So he he, he had a different approach. He just said, no, I understand. Uh, um, white father probably. Wouldn't have that conversation with with the son, or maybe not as not not in the same manner about interaction with police. Perhaps not. I, I don't want to presume that my experience is, is the only one at play. But what I do try to explain to people, you know, a lot of people want to get into uh, statistics and other things when they talk about the interactions between law enforcement and the black community. They want to point to numbers that suggest things are not as bad as some may claim. But people have to understand, like like an individual who's been through a trauma, a uh, family trauma, and that trauma has gone from generation to generation without being addressed, people don't realize that for many, many decades the, the law enforcement community was the tool by which the black community was subjugated. Either they were the enforcer of Jim Crow and other laws, or they looked the other way while extrajudicial punishments like lynchings and other things took place. So the relationship between law enforcement and the black community has been uh, a broken one for long, a long, long time. And you're just not going to overcome that distrust overnight. Um, you know, one of the things that I really believe in when it comes to law enforcement, and we here at Liberty University have a, a large criminal justice program where we train people to be uh, law enforcement officers, and we always emphasize the importance of community policing, that you're not just there to, um, in your with your weapons and your card to uh, prevent wrongdoing. You're also there to build relationships with the people that you're there to protect and serve. And it's really critical that we 
think about law enforcement as a public search, really as a public service, and that we get to know the people that we serve. Community policing works because these people are not anonymous to you. They're not statistics or any of those things. They are um, human beings. Mm -hmm. So if you see little Johnny doing something he shouldn't do and you're a police officer walking the beat rather than sitting in your squad car, your attitude might be, oh, well, I caught little Johnny doing this. Let's go see little Johnny's mom, who I happen to know, and let's see if we can take care of this without getting uh, things wrapped up in the judicial system. Different response. But that requires a level of trust and a level of engagement at at a community level that doesn't happen everywhere. When you look at your students at the university, uh, the next generation, do they have a hopeful perspective of of uh, of their future, a hopeful perspective of their society, because young people uh, often see things differently, um, are more are more hopeful than perhaps their elders, is and more accepting. Is is that a uh, is is that a, a trend that you see, or or a, a position that you that you witness among your students? It, it absolutely is. I mean, working around these young people. It energizes me. It gives me hope because they they do have optimism and energy, and and they look at things and they 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 have a can-do spirit when it comes to um, the challenges that we're facing. Mm-hmm. Um, their hearts are as big as all outdoors. I, I can't tell you how many thousands and thousands of hours of community service our students here uh, in Lynchburg at Liberty University put into the community. Uh, we're talking about. Uh, work hours and helping uh, the underserved communities in our area, food banks, Habitat for Humanity. Our students are out there doing things, and they're seeing a difference. They're making a difference, and they honestly believe that they can do this on a global scale. They they have no doubt. Um, so I'm glad that in a way they're not looking at us cynical old people and thinking that this is how it has to be. They're not accepting that as the uh, uh, the norm. Yeah. Uh, so bringing this around again to the issue of we, we, that has caused and is causing a tremendous amount of friction in in the U.S. Uh, and that is your midterm election because there's a lot at stake for the political parties. They know it and they're they're playing it to the hilt. Um, do you remember when elections used to be boring? <laughs> Especially the midterms. <laughs> All elections used to be just, oh my God, listen to them. The guy's underwear is too tight, you know. <laughs> just, <laughs> but now it's become it's really uh, it's a high stakes game, and there's so much at stake. I, I just I, I thank you for joining us, Ron. I, I do appreciate it, and uh, I wanted to do something today on the show that that looks at our. At our society, greater society in North America, particularly looks at the United States. And uh, I always appreciate speaking with you. Thank you. My pleasure, Roy. Um, Again, I I pray for our society. I know that we can get past this. We just have to start remembering that we're all made in the image of God, every single one of us. Thank you, sir. Take good care. All right, you too. Ron Miller, he's a former senior executive of the Department of Homeland Security. Also, uh, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA. His blog is runreflections.net. And his book is Sellout Musings from Uncle Tom's Porch. If you want to hear more, 
Subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.